0: Welcome to the Faith and More podcast. I firmly believe that the divine works through people to help us every day. These angels and saints are so very humble. Many of us don't know they exist or existed. Hello, my name is Angel and I'll be your host as we explore the lives of these amazing beings. We will also explore topics that can help your faith no matter what it is or isn't. The goal of this show is to inspire, encourage, educate, uplift, strengthen, and heal you and your faith. Hello and welcome to our one-year anniversary slash birthday show. So a year ago on September 5th, which will be tomorrow, um... We started the show and had our very first welcome episode. You can always go all the way back and check that out. If you're new to the show, you're probably scratching your head saying, wow, this show's been here a year. Yes, it has. Absolutely. And welcome. Thank you for finding us and joining us. It is my deepest hope and prayer that you find everything you're looking for in a show, podcast, especially a faith based podcast here and more. And if you're returning infinite thanks blessings and love to all of our longtime listeners so before we begin our happy anniversary slash happy birthday show um, i do want to remind everyone about the saint pets episode that i've been talking about at the end of every show uh, for this season Uh, well you know partly through the season. But that's going to be coming up pretty soon, that season finale for season three. Yeah, I mean, just think how quick a year went by and here we are. And yeah, we'll be ending season three here uh, not too long from now. And um, I still am in need of, you know, stories about your blessed pets. Um, doesn't matter what type of pet it is or was, whether it's living or has passed. Please send me your stories about your beloved pets. Uh, they are such a... Angels and saints, they love us unconditionally and they do so much for us. And I would love to share the story or stories of your pet or pets, so you can send in more than one uh, for the season finale show, which is going to be called Saint Pets. So I want that to be, um, you know, a beautiful mosaic of everyone that listens to the show's pets. Again past or present, um, so we can share those with everyone. And as always, there'll be information at the end of the show on exactly how to send me that information. So before we begin this week's show, I do need to give a disclaimer. And one more quick announcement. Our website has been updated. How many of you go to the website or have gone to the website? Show of hands? Yeah, not many. It is an incredible and valuable, absolutely free resource that I strongly urge you all to check out. There's been two pages added to the website. One is a prayer request page where I will list the details of the prayer request and updates. Instead of filling all that in at the end of every show before our closing prayers and benediction, I figured it would be best to post it on the website that way it's there for quick referral that way when you are doing your daily prayers um, you can go to the website and there is a list of everybody to pray for and what their needs are and secondly the second page or say third page that's been added to the website is an about me uh, page so if you want any more information on me that you don't already know that i haven't already shared I know I talk a lot and I share probably way too much, but if that itch isn't scratched, please check out that page. It's the about page on the website. Well, you'll you'll find more juicy details about moi. And one more thing before we begin, I have to give this disclaimer. Warning! Warning! The following, the following could be, following, be considered untaskable. And most definitely fantastical. So this week, we are going to explore the life of St. Teresa of Avila. So those of you who are Roman Catholic, and maybe, maybe even some that aren't even Roman Catholic, I'm sure have heard of St. Teresa of Avila. Whether you've heard of her by name, or you've studied any of her books, or... You may have heard her mentioned in church or on EWTN or some other Roman Catholic channel. Um, She is probably one of the most well-known saints in the Roman Catholic Church, and she is also a doctor of the church, the first female doctor in the Roman Catholic Church. Imagine that. Yeah. (laughs) Don't get me started on that. But regardless, we are so very happy uh, to be doing the show today on St. Teresa of Avila. And St. Teresa is probably, without a doubt, one of the greatest mystics uh, in history. So the article I'm going to be reading from today uh, came from the EWTN um, Network's website. And I will definitely, as always, have a link to it in the description if you'd like to read it yourself or study it yourself or print it out and put it in a book or whatever you want to do. You keep your notes and things of that nature and journals. Uh, Her story is just, you know, I hate to keep using that cliche term, but truly, truly amazing. Um, And we'll see, you know, her life is very similar to so many of the saints that we've uh, studied and learned about over the beginning, since the beginning of the show, or I should say podcast. <laughs> okay. So in the autobiography, which she completed towards the end of her life, St. Teresa of Avila gives us a description of her parents, along with a disparaging estimate of her own character. Yes, she was no different than most of the saints were they consistently uh put themselves down And i mean it it goes beyond humble it's almost i don't want to use the word abuse but it it borderlines that i mean if somebody today was to be thinking of themselves in these terms uh as some of these saints do um yeah it's 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 a form of self abuse so saint Teresa says the possession of virtuous parents who lived in the fear of God together with those favors which I received from his divine majesty, might have made me good if I had not been so very wicked. A heavy conscience of sin was prevalent in 16th century Spain, and we can readily discount this avowal of guilt. What we are told of Teresa's early life does not sound in the least wicked, but is plain that she was an unusually active imaginative and sensitive child her parents don alfonso sanchez de capeda and donna beatrice de villa y his second wife were people of position in avila a city of old castile where teresa was born on march 28 1515 that was just, a, what, a few days ago? Well, it was that, that was last week, wasn't it? There were nine children of this marriage, of whom Teresa was the third, and three children of her father's first marriage. So that makes 12 kids altogether. Wow. Piously reared as she was, Teresa became completely fascinated by the stories of the saints and martyrs, as was her brother, Roderiga. Rodrigo, who was near his, her own age and her partner in youthful adventures. Once, when Teresa was seven, they made a plan to run away to Africa, where they might be beheaded by the infidel Moors and so achieve martyrdom. So yeah, that was a thing back in those days, that martyrdom or for people to be a martyr, to give their lives for their faith, Uh, Could be equivalent to um, how some kids and even some adults view like the Avengers and superheroes and uh, Batman and, and things of that nature. They were the heroes of that era of that time that I know it sounds strange, but people wanted to be like them. They wanted to die for their faith. So Teresa and her brother set out secretly, expecting to beg their way like the poor friars, but had gone only a short distance from home when they were met by an uncle and brought back to their anxious mother, who had sent servants into the streets to search for them. She and her brother now thought they would like to become hermits. Well, I guess if <laughs> first does doesn't martyrs doesn't work out, next on the list is hermits and they tried to build themselves little cells from stones they found in the garden. Thus, we see that religious thoughts and influences dominated the mind of the future saint in childhood. Teresa was only 14 when her mother died, and she later wrote of her sorrow in these words, As soon as I began to understand how great a loss I had sustained by losing her, I was very much afflicted. And so I went before an image of our blessed lady and besought her with many tears that she would agree to be my mother. We see that in other stories as well uh, for saints who have done that. Saint Gemma was one of them. Remember, she did the same thing after her mother died. Visits from a girl cousin were most welcome at this time, but they had the effect of stimulating her interest in superficial things. Reading tales of chivalry was one of their diversions, and Teresa even tried to write romantic stories. These tales, she says in her autobiography, did not fail to cool my good desires and where the cause and worse, excuse me, the cause of my falling insensibly into other defects. I was so enchanted that I could not be happy without some new tale in my hands. I began to imitate the fashions, to enjoy being well-dressed, to take great care of my hands, to use perfumes, and wear all the vain ornaments which my position in the world allowed. Noting this sudden change in his daughter's personality, Teresa's father decided to place her in a convent of the Augustinian nuns in Avila where other young women of her class were being educated. This action made Teresa aware that her danger had been greater than she knew. After a year and a half in the convent, she fell ill with what seems to have been a malignant type of malaria, and Don Alfonso brought her home. After recovering, she went to stay with her eldest sister, who had married and gone to live in the country. Then she visited an uncle, Peter Sanchez, de Capeta, a very sober and pious man. <laughs> I like how they pointed out that he was not only pious, but he was sober. <laughs> At home once more, and fearing that an uncongenial marriage would be forced upon her, she began to deliberate whether or not she should undertake the religious life. Reading the letters of St. Jerome helped her to reach a decision. St. Jerome's realism and ardor were akin to her own castilian spirit with its mixture of practical and the idealistic she now announced to her father her desire to become a nun but he withheld consent saying that after his death she might do as she pleased and we've seen this before with other female saints is that you know they're parents wanted to marry them off, you know, and, and carry on the family and the bloodline and all that stuff, um, you know, and they they often will say no to, to those or give them ultimatums or just wait until you're 21 or something like that to hopefully uh, dissuade them. But as we see with those saints and as well with St. Uh, Teresa, as we'll see, it doesn't deter them. They stay steadfast and strong and convicted to become what they are. This reaction caused a new conflict, for Teresa loved her father devotedly. Feeling that delay might weaken her resolve, she went secretly to the Carmelite convent of the Incarnation outside the town of Avila, where her dear friend, Sister Jane Suarez, was living and applied for admission. On this painful step, she wrote, I remember while I was going out of my father's house, the sharpness of sense will not be greater. I believe in the very instant of agony of my death that it was then. It seemed as if all the bones in my body were wrenched asunder. There was no such love of God in me then as was able to quench the love I felt for my father and my friends so as she was saying there it it was very heartbreaking for her um, to have to leave secretly on her own and not have her father's consent Um, her father and her family and her friends meant everything to her a year later teresa made her profession but when there was a recurrence of her illness don alfonso had removed From the convent, as the rule of enclosure was not them then in effect, after a period of intense suffering during which, on one occasion at least, her life was despaired of, she gradually began to improve. She was helped by certain prayers she had begun to use. Her devout Uncle Peter had given her a little book called Third Spiritual Alphabet by Father Francis de Asuna, which dealt with prayers of recollection and quiet. Taking this book as her guide, she began to concentrate on mental prayer and progressed towards the prayer of quiet, with the soul resting in divine contemplation, all earthly things forgotten. Occasionally for brief moments she attained the prayer of union, in which all the powers of the soul are absorbed in God. She persuaded her father to apply himself to this form of prayer. So, as it's saying here, she was at the convent and you know had professed, and then uh, right after that, um, she you know she professed. She was going to profess. She became ill, and Don Alfonso um, came and took her back home again to her father, where she you know almost passed away, but she recovered and began very much a serious uh, study of contemplative prayer. I know you guys thought I was going to say contemplative. Well, I just did. (laughs) Contemplative prayer. Again, as we see, who all does this? The mystics do. They revert to that communion uh, with the divine, of walking with the divine, of being with the divine, of living with and in and through and from the divine. So, after three years Teresa was home, she went back to the convent. Her intelligence, warmth, and charm made her a favorite, and she found pleasure in being with people. It was the custom in Spain in those days for the young nuns to receive their acquaintances in the convent parlor, and Teresa spent much time there chatting with friends. She was attracted to one of the visitors whose company was disturbing to her, although she told herself there could be no question of sin since she was only doing what so many others better than she were doing. During this relaxed period, she gave up her habit of mental prayer, using as a pretext the poor state of her health. She said this excuse of bodily weakness was not a sufficient reason why I should abandon so good a thing, which required no physical strength, but only love and habit. In the midst of sickness, the best prayer may be offered, and it is a mistake to think it can only be offered in solitude. She returned to the practice of mental prayer and never again abandoned it, although she had not yet the courage to follow God completely or to stop wasting her time and talents. But during these years of apparent wavering, her spirit was being forged when depressed by her own unworthiness she turned to those two great penitents saint mary magdalene and saint augustine and through them came experiences that helped to steady her will one of the readings or one was the reading of saint augustine's confessions another was an overpowering impulse to penitence before a picture of the suffering lord in which she writes I felt Mary Magdalene come to my assistance. From that day, I have gone on improving in my spiritual life. And we recently did a show on St. Mary Magdalene, St. Mary Magdalene, or Mary of Magdala, whatever you wish to call her. Um, So it's neat to see that she uh, came to the assistance of St. Teresa, even though at that time the view of what Mary Magdalene was was not actually what she is but um, in spirit I'm sure there were no issues between what she was and what the church professed her to be at that time I know that's hard to explain you know the unexplainable that if someone is communing with the divine and they're connecting with angels and saints on that divine level then you know all of the worldly garbage and stuff Uh, preconceived notions egoistic garbage just drops away and you see those beings for what they truly are and you're supposed to start seeing yourself for what you truly are but as we see all too often with the saints uh, especially the saints of old um, the conditioning was that you are a filthy sinner and you're not worthy and that was already in St. Teresa's head and in her heart as we see. But it actually gets worse because, you know, what was what's my saying? The Catholic Church hates saints until they die. Then they love and honor them after they're dead because, you know, that's when you have complete and utter control. So we will see, as with most saints, St. Saint Teresa was no different in the trials, tribulations, accusations, um, just garbage she had to go through. When finally Teresa withdrew from the pleasures of social intercourse, she found herself able once more to pray the prayer of quiet and also the prayer of union. She began to have intellectual visions of divine things and to hear inner voices. Though she was persuaded these manifestations came from God, She was at times fearful and troubled. She consulted many persons, binding all to secrecy. But her perplexities, nevertheless, were spread abroad to her great mortification. Among those she talked with was Father Gaspar Daza, a learned priest who, after listening, reported that she was deluded for such divine favors were not consistent with a life as full of imperfections as hers was as she herself admitted. So here, Father Gaspar, uh, you know, says, oh, you're you're just you're just having delusions and illusions. You're you can't possibly have anything coming from you to the from the divine because you're not worthy. You're just a sinner to what she played right into that by saying, yes, you're right. I am because she was already on that. Uh, mental and um, just beat down on herself. And I mean, that's dangerous. That is very dangerous. Um, Was then even more so it is now um, for people to put themselves down or degrade themselves. The world does that to us enough. We don't need to do it ourselves. We need to be there for each other and especially ourselves. We need to lift ourselves up. We need to help lift others up constantly, continuously, consecutively, non-stop. A friend, Don Francis de Salcido, suggested that she talk to a priest of the newly formed Society of Jesus. To one of them, accordingly, she made a general confession, recounting her manner of prayer and extraordinary visions. He assured her that she experienced divine graces. But warned her that she had failed to lay the foundations of a true spiritual life by practices of mortification. There's that word again, folks. He advised her to try to resist the visions and voices for two months. Resistance proved useless. Francis Borgia, Commissioner, excuse me, commissary General of the Society in Spain, then advised her not to resist further, but also not to seek such experiences. So (laughs) here these guys are saying, you know, these priests are saying, you know, just turn it off. One says you're just deluded and eluded and you're just crazy. Stop. You're not worthy. And you can't possibly. This can't be real. It's you're either crazy or it's the devil, you know, and then you got another guy saying, oh, yeah, it's real. But you haven't laid the foundation, which could be correct. I mean, because she had not been a serious student or uh, studies of theology or the church or anything like that, or at least the biography doesn't allude to that. So he was correct at that point that, you know, you don't have a firm foundation in your faith to quite understand what is being conveyed to you why and what you can do and what you need to do with the divine's direction and communion so but he goes he steps way off the bridge at that point by saying well you just haven't done enough mortifications and for those of you who are just tuning in and haven't heard previous uh seasons of the show where i speak about the saints that do mortifications is that's where you pretty much uh I hate to use the word abuse again, but you abuse yourself, uh, for atonement for your sins. It can start from anything from wearing, uh, the itchiest wool clothing, like from head to toe or from neck to toe, or it can be something like, uh, wearing chains, uh, strapping chains around your ankles or, um, handcuffs. Those manacles that they call them that they go around your ankles, uh, you know, with a heavy ball at the end, we've seen saints that have done that as well. Um, Or to flogging yourself or allowing somebody to flog you. It's yeah, it gets pretty crazy. And I have found, because I believe some episodes ago, I said, I didn't know for sure if the Roman Catholic church had outlawed it or not. From what I've been able to find um, these extreme mortifications have been, but mortifications in general are still permitted on the authority of your uh, spiritual director um, or your spiritual father. So all of them are spiritual confessor. So anybody in the monastic life has a spiritual father mother confessor um, or director. And they are to do as they're directed by these people. They're their mentor, their teacher, whatever you want to, to label them. And they are not to um, go against that, even though we've seen in the past saints, some saints have been told to not do mortifications and they've ignored that uh, or, you know, just thrown that out the window and continue to do it in secret, which is an a big issue because um, monks, nuns, priests, sisters um, all take part as part of their vows a vow of obedience. And that obedience is not just to the divine, but that is to your spiritual confessor, your spiritual guide, your spiritual father, you know, mother, what have you, is your to do as they say. I mean, and especially here, again, like most of the saints, here's somebody that is quite often ill and has something going on in her health that's causing her reoccurring illness, weakness. You know, she's not a hundred percent anytime. And to do mortifications is just not it's no bueno. It's not it's no good because it's all it's doing is it can actually end up killing you. Um, as it did with one saint who pretty much starved herself to death and because her thing was fasting, but she did it to such an extreme that, by the time her confessors found out, and her spiritual guides, who told her not to do it, found out she was doing it. At that states there was no such thing as anorexia, but she was already very anorexic, and she would already caused so much damage to her body, um, and ended up passing at an early age. So there have been several saints that have done this, but one that comes to mind is uh, Saint Rose of Lima. She was all about fasting and prayer and she ended up causing serious damage to her body uh, and she passed away at the age of 31. And she was around the same time frame here, uh, mid 1500s, early 1600s as to um, St. Teresa. So we can see that is a trend. You know, it's a common thing amongst, uh, you know, nuns and sometimes monks. That did that uh, more mortif- type of mortification back then to atone for their sins as well as the sins of the world. Because they felt that if they did this, it would, you know, ease the suffering of the world, relieve the sins of the world. And thus, when they passed, they would become um, close to the divine. But please, 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 people. I don't think many of you would do this, but please don't do that. Don't ever do mortifications to atone for any thing that you feel is wrongdoing or sin or anything that you feel you've done in your life that you feel is bad. If you feel, as I tell people, if you feel you have something to atone for, we all do. We all, (laughs) there's none of us that are sinless, you know, per se, but I hate using that word because it's so, it's been so used, and I've said this many times, it's been so misused over the years as a weapon and control and a way to to um, really um, control people, humiliate people, and just put the boot to the throat kind of thing, and that's horrible. But as I was saying, if you need to atone for something that you've done wrong, said wrong, thought wrong, Uh, where you've missed the mark, which is actually the the correct uh, interpretation of the biblical word for sin, um, is to miss the mark, as Father Mike Cantor told us in the first episode of this season. Check it out if you haven't already. It's amazing. But here I go. I'm chasing the squirrel. No, I'll I'll hurry. I'll grab it real quick. I'll be right back. (laughs) What I'm getting at is if you need to atone, the best way I say and teach and share is to do something for someone. Help someone in need. When was the last time you cleaned out your closet and donated clothes to a church, to Goodwill, St. Vincent de Paul, or some other uh, charity or some um, homeless shelter? When was the last time you went through your cupboards and went and got all the food out that is? Not expired, but it's getting close to it or food that you just aren't going to eat that you got out of a whim or an impulse, but you're not interested in it now. When was the last time you went through your cupboards, packed all that stuff up and took it to a free store food bank or to some other kind of church or an orphanage or a halfway house for women or a drop in shelter to me? That is atoning for what you've done wrong, you know, not to mention not doing that again, or stopping that or getting out of the cycle of that, you know, not repeating that same wrong thing or missing the mark thing, but by doing something for others, helping others. That's the greatest way of atoning. And I don't mean by putting your name on it saying, Hi, I'm Mr. So-and-so in and, and, and this. Oh, hi, I'm Reverend Angel Wise. And this is a donation for me and my family for the poor. No, that that's that's the wrong, the wrong motivation and the wrong intention. And that's that's not going to be the atonement for you. you're not going to get any cookies or points uh, or atonement uh, coupons for the, for that. I should say atonement um, tokens. There you go. You're not going to get any atonement tokens for that. It's got to be selfless from your heart. No ego, no pride. Help. That is the best way to atone. You don't have to and don't need to hurt yourself, harm yourself, abuse yourself. Do something and help others. Another Jesuit father, Balthazar Alvarez, who now became her director, pointed out certain traits that were incompatible with perfect grace. He told her that she would do well to beg God to direct her to what was most pleasing to him, and to recite daily the hymn of St. Gregory the Great, Vinnie, or Veni, Creator Spiritus. One day, as she repeated the stanzas, she was seized with a rapture in which she heard these words. I will not have you hold conversations with men, but with angels. For three years, while Father Balthazar was her director, she suffered from the disapproval of those around her. And for two years, from extreme desolation of soul, she was censored for her austerities and ridiculed as a victim of delusion or a hypocrite. A confessor to whom she went during Father Balthasar's absence, said that her very prayer was an illusion and commanded her when she saw any vision to make the sign of the cross and repel it as if it were an evil spirit. But Teresa tells us that the visions now brought with them their own evidence of authenticity so that it was impossible to doubt they were from God. Nevertheless, she obeyed this order of her confessor, Pope Gregory the 15th, in his bull of canonization commends her obedience in these words. She was wont to say that she might be deceived in discerning visions and revelations, but could not be in obeying superiors. So we see she was beat down for what three years and told to actually make the sign of the cross and uh, rebuke and repel these uh, visions and things when they came to her. But you can't do that with a divine. I mean, it's just it's absolutely impossible. And, you know, that shows uh, nothing, you know, derogatory against these uh, priests and, and fathers and popes and stuff. But they were just completely ignorant to what the divine actually and truly is that how could you stop a mere mortal human how could you wait mortal and human are the same thing sorry <laughs> how could you stop the divine how dare you stop the divine i mean they were just giving her misinformation and it, and again i believe it comes out of ignorance they thought they were doing right according to what they knew but they just did not know what the Divine truly is, and how the Divine truly works. In 1557, Peter of Alcantara, a Franciscan of the observance, came to Avila. Few saints have been more experienced in the inner life, and he found in Teresa unmistakable evidence of the Holy Spirit. He openly expressed compassion for what she endured from slander and predicted that she was not at the end of her tribulations. However, as her mystical experiences continued, the greatness and goodness of God, the sweetness of his service became more and more manifest to her. She was sometimes lifted from the ground an experience other saints have known. God, she says, seems not content with drawing the soul to himself, but he must Needs draw up the very body too, even while it is mortal and compounded and so unclean a clay as we have made it by our sins. So she's not only now you know this awesome Franciscan, you know who has seen other saints and, and knows what those signs are, uh, sees this in her, but tells her, look, you know your trials and tribulations aren't over yet. They're they're unfortunately gonna continue, but now bless her heart. Here's here's Teresa's now starting to levitate. You know, the divine, when she becomes enraptured with the divine, it she starts to to levitate and float. It was at this time, she tells us, that her most singular experience took place, her mystical marriage to Christ, and the piercing of her heart. Now <laughs> This is where it's getting fantastical. If you didn't, if you thought the levitating was something, hang on to your seats, folks. She writes, I saw an angel very near me towards my left side in bodily form, which is not unusual with me, for though angels are often represented to me, it is only in my mental vision. This angel appeared rather small than large and very beautiful. His face was so shining that he seemed to be one of those highest angels called seraphs, who look as if all on fire with divine love. He had in his hands a long golden dart. At the end of the point, methought there was a little fire, and I felt him thrust it several times through my heart in such a way that it passed through my very bowels. And when he drew it out, methought it pulled them out, and with it, and left me wholly on fire with a great love of God. The pain in her soul spread to her body, but it was accompanied by great delight too. She was like one transported, neither, or caring neither to see nor to speak, but only to be consumed with mingled pain and happiness. So the thing is, since Teresa didn't have someone familiar with what mystics experience or a mystic themselves to help guide her, um, she kind of sort of had a death wish that she wasn't going to kill herself, but she wanted to die so she could be with God, with the divine, because she... For her, again, as I've talked about many times about mystics is they operate in between realms. They're operating in between, you know, what I guess you would call heaven uh, or the divine and absolute ultimate truth and in relative truth in reality, which is human mystic humanism, you know, and you can understand how she was just tired of the humanness. She wanted to get just let go of the humanness and become one with the divine. And she was very near close to that. Um, and this is common. This is quite common with mystics is they can misconstrue um, what their purposes are or how to use their gifts, uh, how to use their awakening uh, of the divine to be here and help and do things for others. Um, it can get quite confusing so it's very important that you know if you are studying the mystical path and you are having awakenings, visions, things of that nature, it's important that you get somebody, a legitimate, I have to make sure I stress that, a legitimate guide, uh, someone that can help you, um, someone who's familiar with it, someone who's gone through it or going through it themselves uh, to help you navigate um, so you don't do these pitfalls and fall into these yeah pits uh, like Teresa. Teresa's longing to die that she might be united with God was tempered by her desire to suffer for him on earth. The account which the autobiography gives of her revelations is marked by sincerity, genuine simplic- simplicity of style, and scrupulous precision. An unlettered woman, she wrote... In the Castilian vernacular, setting down her experiences reluctantly, out of obedience to her confessor and submitting everything to his judgment and that of the church, merely complaining that the task kept her from spinning, Teresa wrote of herself without self-love or pride. Towards her persecutors, she was respectful, representing them as honest servants of God. Teresa's other literary works came later, during the 15 years when she was actively engaged in founding new convents of Reformed Carmelite nuns. They are proof of her industry and her power of memory, as well as of real talent for expression. The way of perfection she composed for the special guidance of her nuns and the foundations for their further edification. The interior castle was perhaps meant for her for all Catholics. In it she writes with authority on the spiritual life. One admiring critic says she lays bare in her writings the most impenetrable secrets of true wisdom in what we call mystical theology, of which God has given the key to a small number of his favored servants. This thought may somewhat lessen our surprise that an unlearned woman should have expounded What the greatest doctors never attained, for God employs his works, what instruments he wills. We have seen how undisciplined the Carmelite nuns had become, how the convent parlor at Avila was a social gathering place, and how easily nuns might leave their enclosure. Any woman, in fact, who wanted a sheltered life without much responsibility could find it in a convent in the sixteenth century Spain. The religious themselves, for the most part, were not even aware of how far they fell short of what their profession demanded. So when one of the nuns at the House of the Incarnation began talking of the possibility of founding a new and stricter community, the idea struck Teresa as an inspiration from Heaven. She determined to undertake its establishment herself and received a promise of help from a wealthy widow, Donna Guermar de Ula. The project was approved by Peter of Alcantara and Father Angelo de Salazar, provincial of the Carmelite Order. The latter was soon compelled to withdraw his permission for Teresa's fellow nuns, the local nobility, the magistrates, and others united to thwart the project. Father Ibanez, a Dominican, secretly encouraged Teresa and urged Dona Guermar to continue to lend her support. One of Teresa's married sisters began with her husband to erect a small convent at Avila in 1561 to shelter the new establishment. Outsiders took it for a house intended for use of her family. An episode famous in Teresa's life occurred at this time. Her little nephew was crushed by a wall of the new structure which fell on him as he was playing, and he was carried apparently lifeless to Teresa. She held the child in her arms and prayed. After some minutes, she restored him alive and sound to his mother. The miracle was presented at the process of Teresa's canonization. Another seemingly solid wall of the convent collapsed during the night. Teresa's brother-in-law was going to refuse to pay the masons, but Teresa assured him that it was all the work of evil spirits and insisted that men be paid. Wow, so that's that's a huge first uh, documented miracle of bringing, bringing a child back to life. Wow. A wealthy woman of Toledo, Countess Luis de la Cerda, happened at the time to be mourning the recent death of her husband and asked the Carmelite provincial to order Teresa, whose goodness she had heard praised, to come to her. Teresa was accordingly sent to the woman and stayed with her for six months, using a part of the time at the request of Father Ibanez to write and to develop further her ideas for the convent. While at Toledo, she met Maria of Jesus of the Carmelite convent at Granada, who had revelations concerning a reform of the order, and this meeting strengthened Teresa's own desires. Back in Avila, on the very evening of her arrival, The Pope's letter authorizing the new Reformed convent was brought to her. Teresa's adherents now persuaded the Bishop of Avila to concur, and the convent, dedicated to St. Joseph, was quietly opened. On St. Bartholomew's Day, 1562, the Blessed Sacrament was placed in a little chapel and four novices took the habit. The news soon spread in the town and opposition flared into the open. The Prioress of the Incarnation Convent sent for Teresa, who was required to explain her conduct. Detained almost as a prisoner, Teresa did not lose her poise. The Prioress was joined in her disapproval by the Mayor and the Magistrates, always fearful that an unendowed convent would be a burden on the townspeople. Some were for demolition of the building forthwith, meanwhile Don Francis sent a priest to Madrid to plead for the new establishment before the king's council. Teresa was allowed to go back to her convent, and shortly afterward the bishop officially appointed her prioress. The hubbub now quickly subsided. Teresa was henceforth known simply as Teresa of Jesus, mother of the Reform of Carmel. The nuns were strictly cloistered, under a rule of poverty and almost complete silence. The constant chatter of women's voices was one of the things that Teresa had most deplored. At the incarnation, they were poor, without regular revenues. They wrote, or excuse me, they wore habits of coarse serge and sandals instead of shoes, and for this reason were called the displaced or shoeless Carmelites. Although the prioress was now in her late forties and frail, her great achievement still lay in the future. So as we see, even though the pope gave his blessing in letter form for Teresa to open up this convent and do her thing, um, another local convent prioress got in an uproar over it, and you know was like, "You're on my territory, on my turf, and we're not going to have that." And persuaded the mayor and magistrates to um, take her into custody, take Teresa into custody, and, and was going to. They wanted to demolish the building that the convent was, and fortunately that didn't happen thanks to Don Francis, um, who went to uh, you know, Madrid and was able to get the king's council to approve. It's just ridiculous. Wow, the, the things these poor beings go through, it's such an inspiration for us because, I mean, we all have trials, tribulations, and sufferings. Beyond sufferings, and that's one of the things it's, I really like about sharing these stories is it should give you encouragement, strength, and hope that no matter what you're facing, to stay strong, don't waver and keep moving forward. Convinced that too many women under one roof made for relaxation of discipline, Teresa limited the number of nuns to 13. Later, when houses were being founded with endowments and hence were not wholly dependent on alms, the number was increased to 21. The prior general of the Carmelites, John Baptiste Rubio of Ravina, visiting Avila in 1567, carried away a fine impression of Teresa's sincerity and prudent rule. He gave her full authority to found other convents on the same plan. In spite of the fact that St. Joseph's had been established without his knowledge. Five peaceful years were spent with the thirteen nuns in the little convent of St. Joseph. Teresa trained the sisters in every kind of useful work and in all religious observances, but whether at spinning or at prayer, she herself was always first and most diligent. In August 1567 she founded a second convent in Medina del Campo the Countess de la Cerda was anxious to found a similar house in her native town of Malagon, And Teresa went to advise her about it. When the third community had been launched, the intrepid nun moved on to Valladolid. Yeah, Valladolid, sorry. And there founded a fourth then a fifth at Toledo on the, Beginning this work, she had no more than four or five ducats, approximately $10. But she said, Teresa and this money are nothing but God, Teresa, and these ducats suffice. At Medina del Campo, she encountered two friars who had heard of her reform and wished to adopt it. Antony del de Heredia, prior of the Carmelite monastery there, and John of the Cross, with their aid in 1568, in the authority given her by the prior general, she established a reformed house for men at Derillo, and in 1569, a second one at Pastrana, both on a pattern of extreme poverty and austerity. She left to John of the Cross, who at this time was his, in his late twenties. The direction of these other reformed communities that might be started for men. Refusing to obey the order of his provincial to return to Medina, he was imprisoned at Toledo for nine months. After his escape, he became vicar general of Andalusia and strove for papal recognition of the order. John, later to attain fame as a poet, mystic confessor, and finally saint, became Teresa's friend a close spiritual bond developed between the young friar and the aging prioress. And he was made director and confessor in the mother house at Avila. So we see St. Teresa just moving and grooving right along, making convents everywhere she went and uh, (laughs) only $10 in her pocket. Uh, She didn't care. She just kept going and kept going. And then, you know, she met these other two friars, one of, should sound familiar to all of you, especially Roman Catholics, who became Saint John of the Cross. Yes, this was the Saint John of the Cross, who was just known as John of the Cross at the time that they're speaking of, um, who met Saint Teresa. They became fast friends. Um, he refused to go back to his post and was imprisoned for nine months for not going back to his monastery because he wanted to stay at the monastery there to help convert it uh, and reform it, I should say. And, you know, look what happened from there on. He was given papal recognition and um, he just moved on up himself and just, wow, amazing. You know how, again, as I've said in previous shows, how these saints affect other people around them is just amazing of how just being in their presence is so uplifting, strengthening, encouraging, inspiring, that it just makes you want to do better. It makes you want to do more for others. It just makes you want to do. The hardships and dangers involved in Teresa's labors are indicated by a little episode of the founding of a new convent at Salamanca. She and another nun took over a house which had been occupied by students. It was a large dirty, desolate place, without furnishings, and when night came the two nuns lay down on their piles of straw, for Teresa tells us, the first furniture I provided wherever I founded convents was straw, for having that I reckoned I had beds. On this occasion the other nun seemed very nervous, and Teresa asked her the reason. I was wondering, was the reply what you would do alone with a corpse if I were to die here now? Teresa was startled, but only said, I shall think of what when it happens, sister, for the present let us go to sleep. At about this time, Pope Pius V appointed a number of apostolic visitors to inquire into the relaxations of discipline and religious orders everywhere. The visitors to the Carmelites, of Castile found great fault with the Incarnation convent and sent for Teresa, bidding her to assume its direction and remedy the abuses there. It was hard to be separated from her daughters, and even more distasteful to be brought in as head of an old house which had long opposed her with bitterness and jealousy. The nuns at first refused to obey her. Some of them fell into hysterics at the very idea. She told them that she came not to coerce or instruct but to serve and to learn from the least among them. By gentleness and tact she won the affection of the community and was able to re-establish discipline. Frequent callers were forbidden, the finances of the house were set in order and more truly religious spirit reigned. And At the end of three years, although the nuns wished to keep her longer, she was directed to return her own convent wow so isn't that something the convent she started off with was found to be corrupt imagine that and they appointed poor Teresa to go there and uh, get it under control get it back in order and as we see she didn't go in with an iron fist yelling and dictating and saying this is how it's going to be she went in very gentle she went in saying she was going to learn from the least of them and she did it with gentleness In love and she was able to win the nuns over and get it all taken care of and straightened out so much to the fact she won them over that after three years they didn't want her to leave they wanted her to stay there so that says a lot and before i continue two apologies first i apologize that this show is running a little long but i hope you all are enjoying it And if you're finding that you're running low on time, feel free to pause the show here and you can come back to it anytime or just download it to your phone, tablet, or computer. Easy enough to do. You can do it through the website or through Spotify or Apple Podcasts. They allow you to do that. Um, Also, Podcast Guru, you can do it there. The second apology to anyone who is of Spanish or Italian descent, I apologize profusely for the gross mispronunciation of these names in places. Um, I'm doing the level best that I can. Teresa organized a nunnery at Vias, and while there met Father Jerome Gratian, a reformed Carmelite and was persuaded by him to extend her work to Seville. With the exception of her first convent, none proved so hard to establish as his. Among her problems there was a disgruntled novice who reported the nuns to the Inquisition, charging them with being Illuminati. The Italian Carmelite friars had meanwhile been growing alarmed at the progress of reform in Spain, lest, as one of their number said, they might one day be compelled to set about reforming themselves, a fear shared by their still unreformed Spanish brothers. At a general chapter at Piacenza, several decrees were passed restricting the reform. The new apostolic nuncio dismissed Father Gratian from his office as a visitor to the reformed Carmelites. Teresa was told to choose one of her convents and retire to it and abstain from founding others. At this point she turned to her friends in the world who were able to interest King Philip II in her behalf and he personally espoused her cause. He summoned the nuncio to rebuke him for his severity towards the discalced friars and nuns. In 1580, an order from Rome exempting the Reformed from the jurisdiction of the unreformed Carmelites and giving each party its own provincial father, Gratian was elected provincial of the reform branch, the separation, although painful to many, brought an end to dissension. So, if you all caught that, uh, what was going on was the re- unreformed were trying everything they could do to stop the reform. Um, and she was able to, with her friend's help, get the king, King Philip II, involved. Wow. And get him to get this stopped and then Rome decided to finally get involved. I know don't get me started (laughs) to get involved to do something about this and separated the two, the reformed from the unreformed and therefore just appointing a provincial to run the reformed, which blessings was Father Gratian. Teresa was a person of great natural gifts. Her adorer and lively wit was balanced by her sound judgment and psychological insight. It was no mere flight of fancy when the English Catholic poet Richard Crushaw called her the eagle and the dove. She could stand up boldly and bravely for what she thought was right. She could also be severe with a prioress who, by excessive austerity, had made herself unfit for her duties. Yet she could be gentle as a dove, and when she writes to an er erring, irresponsible nephew, God's mercy is great in that you have been enabled to make a good, a choice, and marry so soon. For you began to be dissipated when you were so young that we might have had much sorrow on your account. Love with Teresa meant constructive action, and she had the young man's daughter, born out of wedlock, brought to the convent, and took charge of her upbringing and that of his young sister. So, as we see, Teresa was adamant as well to go after um, nuns and prioresses that were um, too austere, that were, you know, doing the things, mortifications. That's the word. It always slips my mind. But she was insistent on stopping this because. You know, she herself had done it to an extent at one time. She had now seen and realized that that was wrong and that it's wrong to do so many mortifications and be so austere that you harm yourself to where you can't fulfill your obligations and duties as um, a member of the clergy. So it's awesome that she was able to to try to thwart that as much as she could. One of Teresa's charms was a sense of humor. In the early years, when an indiscreet male visitor to the convent was praised the beauty of her bare feet, she laughed and told him to take a good look at them, for he would never see them again, implying that in the future he would not be admitted. Her method of selecting novices was characteristic. The first requirement, even before piety, was intelligence. A woman could attain to piety, but scarcely to intelligence, but which she meant common sense as well as brains. An intelligent mind, she wrote, is simple and teachable. It sees its faults and allows itself to be guided. A mind that is dull and narrow never sees its faults, even when shown them. It is always pleased with itself and never learns to do right. Pretentiousness and pride annoyed her once a young woman of high reputation for virtue asked to be admitted to a convent in teresa's charge and added as if no emphasis excuse me as if to emphasize her intellect i shall bring my bible with me what exclaimed teresa your bible do not come to us we are only poor women who know nothing but how to spend and how to do as we are told so poor Teresa had an admirer, a guy, a guy with a foot fetish. <laughs> oh my gosh, going all the way back to the late 1500s, guys could still be, oh, oi oi. In spite of a naturally sturdy constitution, Teresa continued throughout her life to suffer from ailments, which physicians found baffling. It would seem that sheer willpower kept her alive. At the time of the definitive division of the Carmelite Order, she had reached the age of 65 and was broken in health. Yet during the last two years of her life, she somehow found strength to establish three more convents. They were at Granada in the far south, at Burgos in the north, and at Soria in Portugal. The total was now 16. What an astounding achievement this was for one small, enfeebled woman may be better we appreciate if we recall the hardships of travel. Most of this extensive journeying was done in a curtained carriage or cart drawn by mules over the extremely poor roads. Her trips took her from the northern provinces down to the Mediterranean and west into Portugal, across the mountains, rivers, and arid plateaus. She and the nun who accompanied her, endured all the rigors of a harsh climate, as well as the steady discomfort of rude lodgings and scanty food. In the autumn of 1582, Teresa, although ill, set out to Alva de Tormes, where an old friend was expecting a visit from her. Her companion of later years, Anne of St. Bartholomew, describes the journey. Teresa grew worse on the road along which there were few habitations. They could get no food save figs, and when they arrived at the convent, Teresa went to bed in a state of exhaustion. She never recovered, and three days later she remarked to Anne, At last, my daughter, I have reached the house of death, a reference to her book, The Seven Mansions. Extreme unction was administered by Father Antony de Heredia, a friar of the Reform, and when he asked her where she wished to be buried, she plaintively said, Will they deny me a little ground for my body here? She sat up and she received the sacrament, exclaiming, O my Lord, now is the time that we shall see each other, and died in Anne's arms. It was the evening of October 4th, the next day as it happened. The Gregorian calendar came into use. The readjustment made it necessary to drop 10 days, so that October 5th was counted as October 15th, and this later date became Teresa's feast day. She was buried at Alva three years later, following the decree of a provincial chapter of Reformed Carmelites. The body was secretly removed to Avila. The next year, the Duke of Alva Procured an order from Rome to return it to Alva de Tormes, and there it has remained. <laughs> so they were, they were fighting over her body after she passed. Bless her soul. Teresa was canonized in 1662. Shortly after her death, Philip II, keenly aware of the Carmelite nun's contribution to Catholicism, had her manuscripts collected and brought to his great palace of the Escorial, and there placed in a rich case, the key of which he carried on his person. These writings were edited for publication by two Dominican scholars and brought out in 1587. Subsequently her works have appeared in uncounted Spanish editions and have been translated into many languages. An ever-spreading circle of readers through the centuries have found understanding and courage in the life and works of this nun of Castile, who is one of the glories of Spain and of the church. Teresa's emblems are a heart, an arrow, and a book. So there you have it, folks. That is a little story of uh, St. Teresa of Avila. Um, Feel free to check out her biography. There are so many books about her. I'll put a couple links in the show notes Uh, to give you a head start, but you can just do a Google search or an Amazon search to find more on her. Just put in Saint Teresa of Avila and so much will come up. And I think it's really cool that, you know, she was kind of a mentor to, you know, the soon-to-be Saint John of the Cross, and we will definitely be doing a show on him in the future. So as we continue on with these saints, it's giving us more of a clear window into what the mystics are and what mysticism is and that it's definitely something that's attainable. It's something that each one of us can do. And I think that's what the um, the the saints try to do the most is to point out how natural and how ordinary being a mystic is. Um, you know, it's not complicated. It's just about, you know, just being a little disciplined and, you know, praying and, and having you know an open communication and communion with the divine whatever that divine is to you now i know some of you who listen aren't christian aren't catholic and that's that's fine that's that's absolutely fine but you can still be a mystic in your faith by whatever divine you believe in or by whatever label that divine goes by uh doing the very same thing you know having communion with that divine or having communion with the saints or saints of your uh, faith or, you know, whoever represents your faith, you know, you can find so much strength, encouragement and power in that to develop that discipline, you know, in your daily life to make your spiritual life um, kind of a priority. Yes. I mean, we all have busy lives. We all have to work. We all have families. We all have mortgages. We all have car payments and utilities. And I know if the list goes on and on and on, not just to mention the current gas prices, which are just astronomical, but you can still make time for a spiritual life. I mean, when we want to do something, we can make time. We find it's easy to make time for it or fairly easy. The same applies to our spiritual life. We should want to make time. Time for that. Trust and believe me that it will be so beneficial to your life, to your everyday life. It will change you in positive ways and you will get such a more richness and fullness of every moment of your life. You realize that you just there's so much of your life that you're just on autopilot and you're really not paying any attention as life goes by. You're just doing, you're just a drone. You know, you get up, you do the same routine every day to get up, you go to work, you come home, you eat, you go to bed, you know, and it's just, you know, wash, rinse, repeat over and over and over again, you know, and, and you just live for the weekend. But then when the weekend gets here, you're exhausted. You go do some more things and then come back exhausted. And what do you do? You start the week exhausted back to work and it's just, Life does not have to be that extreme. Yes, we still have to go through the daily grind unless we're fortunate enough to be billionaires or win the lottery. Uh, but until then, yeah, we still have to do it. But believe me, the stronger your spiritual life is and your faith is, the easier your life will be. The more joy you will see in the mundane, the more benefit you will get from each and every moment and the more aware you'll be of everything around you and everyone around you. Yeah I know that <laughs> there I go again trying to explain the unexplainable but I hope the pointers help a little bit Just a quick reminder that our website has been updated. So. I'm going to read off the people in need of prayers. And if you want the details on that, please go to the website, information at the end of the show and every show on how to get to the website. I strongly and greatly urge everyone to check it out. It's an amazing, valuable and free resource. So I'm going to read the names again of those who are in need of prayers and the details will be on the website, Mike S, Bob, Elaine, Clyde, Kathy, Michael T, Megan, Molly, and Gwen, Emma, Jean, and Father Mike Cantor. Please keep them in your heart, thoughts, and prayers. Okay, so I hope you all are still with me here. I'm going to do a closing prayer, but it's more of going to be a guided meditation. So thank you all for sticking around because now you get this treat, I hope see it as a treat <laughs> Anyway, um, earlier in the show, we were talking about, or the article talked about how St. Teresa um, did a prayer of recollection. I'm going to share that with you all here, and I'm going to also um, include a link to an awesome PDF file, which is safe and free, that you can download um, that will have this information I'm going to share you that you you can print it out or just keep it on your phone or tablet or computer and read it and do this meditation and prayer. So this prayer is called recollection because the soul collects its faculties together and enters within itself to be with its God, St. Teresa of Avila. That's what she said. The prayer of recollection has four parts. One is preparation. Two is meeting the Lord. Three is intimate sharing and for the conclusion. So you all, again, those of you who are of different faiths can adapt this in any way, shape, or form. It will work for your faith or anyone's faith. So Teresa tells us, St. Teresa tells us that the beginnings will be difficult. We are acquiring a new habit. We need to be determined and trust that we are walking towards a new life with the Lord. So this is not something you just do one and done. This is like a daily practice. Remember, we were just talking about the importance of some kind of spiritual discipline, about doing some kind of spiritual practice every day. And this is a great way to do that. So we need to determine the length of the time we will spend in prayer. We need to look for a silent spot that agrees with us. Make yourself comfortable in a posture that will allow you to go within. Choose a gospel passage, a hymn, an image, an icon, or light a candle to help you focus your attention on Jesus or whomever you follow. Surrender your concerns to our Lord and little by little come aware of your breathing, your body, and your inner world. Focus on his loving presence within you. Center your attention on him. So next we have meeting the Lord. Imagine the living Jesus within you. When withdrawing within You can look at him in a bible scene and join him in the scene as an observer or a participant or repeat a sentence that expresses what you would like to say to him or recite the our father slowly savoring every word remember that jesus is the center of your prayer you are seeking a friendship with him recall that you are in our lord's presence Sit quietly with him. Allow yourself to be looked at by him. Listen to him. Look at him with the eyes of faith and be aware that he is looking at you. When your mind wanders, gently bring your attention back to the Lord present within you. Next is intimate sharing. As you look at Jesus in faith, you may feel moved to speak to him. You may want to ask him for the living water, promised the samaritan woman or tell him that you love him or thank him for his many gifts to you or ask a favor of him or for strength in a trial that you are going through just speak to him however your heart moves you to speak if you do not feel moved to speak just remain quietly with jesus looking at him with eyes of faith and love come to him as you are if you are joyful look at him as risen if you're in pain look at him in suffering with eyes of faith and love look at him who is looking at you allow your heart to express whatever you desire to say to the Lord conclusion don't evaluate the quality of your prayer what is important is that you meeting with our Lord took place Teresa calls this path of prayer the royal road to heaven A great treasure is gained by traveling this road. Faith, persistence, consistency, and commitment are necessary. It isn't about thinking a lot. It is about loving a lot. So, do what best stirs you to love. If it is a word, speak it out. If it is silence, be silent. If it is an image, focus on the image. It is all about friendship. She concludes by saying interior prayer is, in my opinion, simply an intimate exchange of friendship where we speak often one on one with the one who we know loves us. We just had a step by step from one of the greatest mystics in history in the world ever, ever in the history of human life. And as you can see, what we've been saying and what the saints have been saying is how simple it is to be a mystic. It just requires, as she said, that love and consistency and dedication. If you just did this one practice every day, I mean, wow, the change you would see in yourself and in the world around you and everyone in it would just be mind blowing. I can't recommend it enough. I actually recommend that you get the PDF, download the PDF, print off several copies, put it everywhere. Put it on your desk at work, put it on your refrigerator, put it on your computer, put it on your tablet, put it next to where you sit in the living room, someplace where you're always seeing it on your nightstand next to your bed. It'd be great to do this practice before you go to bed or and when you get up. What better way to start your day or end your day than with this mystical practice. It is so very simple and so powerful that it will take you directly to communicating with the divine. Real quick here, I'll give our benediction blessings. In nominee Divi Fili spiritus Sancti, may the divine shine upon and within you, may the divine hear and answer your prayers. May you experience divine love, compassion, and forgiveness. May your brokenness be healed, and may you share that healing with others. May the divine bless you with peace, health, and love. In nomine Divi fili et Spiritus Sancti. I so hope and pray that you've enjoyed the show and that you found everything that you've been searching for in a podcast, especially a faith-based podcast, and more here with us. Don't be a stranger. Come around anytime, all the time. We now have an Amazon.com wish list for the show for anyone who would like to make an offering. Um, A link can always be found in the show notes and show description. Now, I know some people like to do that, that, that helps them feel as you know they're contributing and doing something and this is the best way because some people have asked me about setting up a patreon and I'm completely against that I don't want to accept any kind of money for anything I'm doing here Jesus didn't do it Buddha didn't do it I didn't do it before when I taught uh, Buddhism and Eastern philosophy for four years Um, but I will accept books so I do have a list uh, on that wish list for the show that you can, if you feel compelled to and you have the means, please don't take from your grocery money or your bill money or from just life money. If you have it and you want to make an offering, then go to the wish list and do so. I would be beyond grateful and appreciative. And by purchasing books and sending them to me, what you're doing is. You're helping me educate myself so I can then pass that education on to all of you. And that also sparks and creates and inspires more and more shows. So it's a gift that keeps giving that's never ending. I'm always open to questions and suggestions. Um, as I always say, there's it's always like crickets in my mailbox. <laughs> I don't hear much from anybody but you know unless it's family and there's nothing wrong with that but I know there are so so many of you all over the world that are listening and I completely understand and I respect your privacy and I respect that you're quiet Um, and but I do want you all to know that I'm here for you all the time and uh, again speaking of suggestions I mean I know there are so many amazing angels and saints past and present in your community, in your country. Could even be you that the world doesn't know about, but by gosh, we should know about. Um, Could be some that have come and gone that are fading from memories and hearts. And we tend to, you know, shine the light on a lot of those here in the show. And that's kind of one of the goals of this show is to make sure these beings stay alive because they are such amazing, truly amazing. Um, It's tragic for someone, anyone really, to be their memory, to be lost, uh, their life to be lost. And we don't want that. So, again, please, please, please feel free to contact me, share these people with me, even if it's you. Please get with me, share with me so I can share with the world. Remember, you don't have to be alone on your spiritual journey. Again, I'm always here for all of you. I'm always available to help guide, uh, offer advice. Uh, You can always email me directly or contact me through the website. My services are ever growing and expanding as the Spirit takes me and as you all need And the cost of these services, or all services I provide, is absolutely zero, absolutely free. I'm here for you guys. Next is prayers. Uh, You guys always hear me say this, and you always will. I love to pray, and so do listeners of the show. So please, let us pray for you. So, all of these services, how do you make it happen? by contacting me and how can you do that there's two ways you can do that first you can email me directly at faith and more podcast all one word faith and podcast at gmail.com and the second way is through the website there's a contact button on the website where you can email me or you can fill out the prayer request form at the bottom of the web page you can also use that form for also asking for help, for guidance, for suggestions, for advice. Use that as well. It's a, it's a catch all form. Use it as you need it. So, in order to find the website, you go to Faith and More Podcast. Again, all one word faithandmorepodcast.wiksite. W I X S I T E.com slash my site. S I T E. And there's always links to my contact information, email, and the website in all of our show notes and show descriptions. So, until next week, have a blessed week and know that each and every one of you is in my heart, in prayers. Bless you.